you know, taking principled risks is is critical because if you only do what you know works, you're never going to be the one who captures lightning in a bottle because by its nature, it's the first person, it's the first, you know, that it's that rarity. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey, everyone. My guest today is Kate McCutcheon, the CMO of Cedars. Cedars is one of the leading crowdfunding platforms in the world. Kate also has a role as the global head of marketing for Republic Retail, which acquired Cedars last year. Kate has a fascinating background that we really get into. She's 15 years of experience in marketing strategy and coming up through kind of bigger brands like Apple and Samsung, but also doing really innovative challenger things at other organizations. So she headed up marketing for Amazon Fresh in the UK right when it launched. She worked on Kindle. She also spent some time at Square. We talk a lot about her time at Away, the challenger luggage suitcase travel brand that we've covered pretty often in our newsletter and kind of hold up as one of the great examples of a challenger brand and how they, um, not just how they grew, but also how they navigated navigated COVID, uh, which Kate talks a lot about. So we get into talking about how to approach global growth, how to market through a downturn, how to replicate lightning in a bottle. And I really love the principle that she kind of leaves me and you to think about and walk away with, which is how and why to take principled risk to grow your brand and business. So with that, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode with Kate McCutcheon of Cedars. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. You are our first guest of 2023, although I don't know when this episode is going to be released, but have a lot of energy for this one. It's the first one of the new year after a couple weeks off. So I appreciate you being a- We got to set the bar high. We're setting it for the whole year. I like it. I like the energy. All right, uh, let's just get into it. I'm excited about this conversation. You and I connected, it was a little while ago that we had kind of our prep call, but I still remember some of the ideas that came out of that and some of the things that I was excited to talk to you about. So before we get into the meat of the conversation, the first question that we ask every guest, what is one challenger brand that you're very passionate about right now and why? I I both love and fear this question because I feel like I spend so much of my time excited about what other people are doing, but then you get put on the spot and you forget. But luckily you did give me a little bit of a heads up. Um, I'm, if it's okay, I'm going to answer with one challenger brand, but then I'm also going to answer with one really highly topical uh, marketing thing that's happening right now that I think is fantastic. Um, in terms of challenger brands, one that I have really loved watching is coat paints don't know if they're on your radar um don't know them they are a a young british company that is aiming to disrupt the home paint industry uh you know if you think about it for so long it's been kind of you know you've got dulux you've got uh you know um pharaoh and ball and you know that was kind of it. And they have come in and they're trying to create 
you know, colors that are beautiful, that are better for the environment, so non-toxic, all of these things. They do these amazing both colors and names and have created this brand that's really aspirational and accessible uh, and speaks to, you know, that that kind of audience that has never thought about this uh, as as something uh, that, that they should care about. And I love it whenever I see their marketing, you know, whenever it shows up in my social feed or I see print ads or things like that, I just think I feel like they are nailing it because they're taking a category that has been boring or, you know, that people don't think about, you know, you, you, your, your builder says this yeah. is the color and you go with it to, to something that people want to make an, an intentional decision about. And I, I just think that's fantastic to see. And I'm excited to see where they go with it. I haven't heard of them before, although I'm checking them out and it looks really interesting. I'm going to have to dive into a little bit more of how they're building the brand and doing their marketing, but I have heard of Lick Paint yep. that's doing a similar type of thing. But I've always been so fascinated by, you know, you see it more in like the CPG world where it's like you see these startups and these scale-ups that are just taking <clears throat> oftentimes what is a very boring product or category and just kind of reinventing it for the world of today and actually the name of this podcast, why it's called Scratch, is because we think there's so many things that challenger brands do differently. But if you have to boil it down, if you have to tie all the threads back to one thing, it's about being fit for purpose for the world of today. And you can just see it when you go and look, even at the website, and I'm sure the product and the marketing material of a coat or a link, uh, a lick, it's just so different. Um, I remember I, I talked to I, I talked to a a. a not even Q-Tip. I didn't even realize that Q-Tip was like Kleenex. It's like the name of a company that has become the name of the category, but an ear cleansing thing, you know, those things that you put in your ear to clear, to clean it, that, it, you know, they're just reinventing that from scratch. So I'm always so fascinated by, you know, obviously you've got like the Teslas and like the big, sexy, new uh, innovators but sometimes things like this are just as interesting for a marketing and business nerd like me. Well, and I think the the other really interesting thing as I follow them and Lick, another one that I know, and there's a few others in the space, is um, I think the D2C model has really drastically changed from even 2019 to 2022 with the changes in iOS and other things that mean you can't be hyper-targeted. You know, previously you could come up with the world's greatest Q-tip and just target people for that. You could have your one product and you could build a whole business on that. I'm not sure that that's possible anymore with you know, the unit economics of, of advertising in this post, uh, you know, ask to track world. Um, but it's interesting to me to see brands like Coat and Lick who are continuing um, to find ways to work directly with consumers that does work. Um, so I'm, I'm really interested to see how that space evolves, but I've really liked what they've done within it so far. Awesome. All right, let's get into uh, the conversation that we have for today. So I, I would have given, or I will have given an overview on your background in the introduction that people would have already heard. But but because, you know, obviously we're going to talk about what you're doing at Cedars and Republic, but because a lot of what I think is really interesting in the conversation we're going to get into ties to your experience in other challenger businesses and other categories, I'd love for you to just take maybe a minute to give a bit of your background and tell your story uh, as kind of like how you came up as a marketer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I, so I guess the whistle stop tour is I'm American, but I've been in Europe now for going on 18 years. So I moved over to do my MBA. Candidly, I moved over to do my MBA because I wanted to live in Paris. I vaguely wanted to be a marketing. I didn't know how to do that. And I was too impatient to go the sensible route, which would be go get hired by a PNG or another big multinational work my way up, get myself transferred. I was like, no, we're going to go the, you know, jump right into a master's and see see what can be done of it, which you might see as a, a bit of a theme as we go through my career. Uh, that brought me to Paris in the first place. I did uh, my MBA at, at HEC, one of the big business schools in Paris. Um, and then from there, uh, started as an intern during my MBA at Apple. Uh, in their retail marketing team, stayed on with them after I finished my degree. That's what brought me to London originally because I was doing an EMEA role. And that really kind of kickstarted uh, a career that was unintentional, but has now become somewhat intentional of often working in and then later leading the overseas businesses for primarily American brands. So I spent a few years at Apple, uh, scaling one of their retail programs. Uh, focusing on new stores within the premium reseller program. Uh, I then moved to Samsung for a couple of years as their head of retail marketing uh, in UK and Ireland. So how do you take a brand that spans from televisions to washing machines to everything in between and make it make sense to customers in the place where they're going to encounter all of those in, you know, at a time bricks and mortar retail increasingly online. Uh, which then brought me to Amazon, um, originally, again, in hardware, rolling out Kindle into bricks and mortar retailers across Europe, um, you know, so continuing kind of the product marketing and the retail marketing. Uh, and then from there, you know, spent six years in Amazon working across a variety of business units, finishing my time there, helping them launch Amazon Fresh into the UK, which was the first international instance of their grocery delivery business. And I think that's really set me on the path that has brought me to Cedars, which was, it kind of gave me a taste of startups with the biggest guardrails possible because we were a small and scrappy team. There were less than 50 of us launching uh, a grocery store. And the Amazon offices at the time were Caddy Corner to Sainsbury's, massive offices in, uh, in Farringdon. And so we could kind of see the army of people doing it and we're figuring out how to do it small uh, and and how you make that work and that you know I really loved and so as each opportunity since then to help Square launch into Europe uh, then to help away grow in Europe and then finally to help Cedars and now Republic you know develop and build this new category I think the through thread is it's really fun to take on challenges where you're not sure how it's going to work. It doesn't always work, uh, but you're like, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to see what can happen. And if we do it right, we're going to build a brand that people love and are excited about. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of what has driven me throughout my career. So let's start by talking about global growth. You've worked at big global brands, sometimes in regional roles, but always thinking about how do you actually drive growth globally for the brands that you work for and have helped to shepherd. So obviously replicating that is tough for any business, but I'd be curious to understand, like you've done it across so many different sectors and different types of businesses. So 
how do you do that? How do you how do you <laughs> drive global growth across you know these different these different businesses, these different categories? Are there any kind of red threads or key takeaways that you've started to build over the years and over the jobs that you can share with our audience? Yeah, I I think that one of the really interesting takeaways is um, almost every brand encounters the same challenges, whether it is groceries, whether it is um, whether it is card payments, whether it is luggage. Um, and that is that global growth won't look like growth in your home market. Um, and that I think is the through thread that I've taken and, you know, and is, is helping companies to understand that. Um, so to give an example, when, when we were launching Amazon Fresh into the UK, um, it was the first international instance. It was the best version of Amazon Fresh that had ever been developed from a feature set perspective. But the competitive landscape was drastically different in the UK. The UK has had grocery deliveries for 30 years now. Ocado has been around for, for 10, 15 years. You know, the bar was not the bar in the US where this is a completely nascent business and, and, and it's brand new. And it's helping to look at what does product market fit look like? How does that differ? How how have the tools and levers that you have changed? You know, Away was able to build one of the most successful organic social brands because they captured lightning in a bottle. They launched at just the right time when Instagram was taking off and they could build, you know, a truly organic, highly engaged following of millions of people. You can't do that anymore. You know, Meta has locked all that down. Anything that lets you grow organically, they're going to charge you for. And that means that the second stage of growth is always going to look different. So it's, I think what's important is look at what has succeeded, take that with you, but recognize that the playing field is inevitably different in each market you go to. And you have to react to that because the more that you compare it to where you've been successful before, the harder it will be. Whereas if you can kind of take those successes through, but go, let's look at this landscape. Let's look at what we're facing here and solve that problem. The quicker you can build on everything you've done and create that momentum. So it's a, what got you here won't get you there type of yeah. thing. And also to our whole conversation about businesses being fit for purpose, thinking about things from scratch, sounds like the same thing in terms of approaching those different stages of global growth. You can't just be beholden and try to iterate on top of what you've done. You need to actually think about how you would do it if you were starting from here going forward. And is it the same with the marketing function? How you think about the talent you need, the org structure you need, maybe the external partners that you need, is it the same type of philosophy or is there something different that you think about when it comes to actually the inner workings of how you need to scale and build the marketing machine for global growth? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that it's similar in that what you're going to start with in a new region is going to look a lot more like a startup than than where you probably are if you've built out um you know if you've successfully built one region uh because you will have a depth of of bench there because of the growth that you've been through and so i think what's important is to figure out what can you leverage what's there what works what you know and that will be different by company you know it might be some companies have like fully brought specific channels in-house and can you build that out as a global team 
you have a team that is working on, uh, you know, that's working on search, you know, as long as someone's feeding them the right copy for each region, is that something you want to create as a global center of excellence? Or actually, you know, there are channels that the nuances are so specific locally that you want to make sure that you have the right local partners and things like that. So I think the way that I always approach it is what are global centers of excellence? Where is their local local knowledge and nuance that can't be uh, can't be underestimated? Build for those first. Leverage whatever you can. Um, you know, the the other thing that I am a big believer in that that I think can sometimes uh, be surprising in tech companies and things like that. But I'm a really big believer at the beginning of not being afraid to work with agency partners and external partners, because I think that especially within tech companies, there's often a, you know, in-house is better. And that can absolutely be true at scale. But there can be a value to paying a little bit more for the flexibility of bringing in the resource that you need, you know, because you don't actually know what you need at first. When I joined at Square, the agency we brought on board was fantastic, but actually we brought on board the wrong agency because it turns out what we needed was different than what we had originally briefed them on. And being able to go through that process organically and then, you know, evolve that was really critical. Whereas if we had hired all of those people in house, you know, that would have been a very different, uh, you know, a very different challenge for us to solve for. So I think thinking about flexibility, thinking about leveraging global centers of excellence, but building out for that local knowledge that can't be replicated allows you to move as quickly as possible. I think there's always the theory and the reality. And when it comes to in-house or external partners, the way that I think about it is I think businesses should default to building the capabilities in-house. However, if situationally, based on where the business is at, financially, and also the talent, either internally or within the agency that you might be able to bring on, you need to react to that. So it might be that, you know, for now it makes sense to bring this external partner on, but at some point maybe do that. But I think that I think that the center of gravity really should be in housing, unless it makes sense not to. So, so what about at Cedars and Republic right now? Can you kind of, to the extent that you're able, uh, lift up the hood and give us a view of what all this learning looks like when applied to your current job right now? How are you, how are you approaching the global growth that I'm sure you're looking to deliver at Cedars and Republic? Yeah, it's exciting. Um, I think that... The really exciting thing for me is that bringing together Cedars and Republic is building a, you know, the, the, what is currently or soon will be the world's largest uh, global private investing platform, you know, enabling investors across multiple regions to invest in startups, to invest in culture. We've got um, culture offerings in the U.S. to invest in um, real estate, to invest in all of these asset classes that have traditionally been closed off, um, which is really exciting. Now the question becomes, how do we tell that story and how do we build a, a cohesive brand within a space that is highly regulated and where the regulations are not the same without that, with, you know, across each region. And so that's, I think the challenge we have going into 2023 is pulling together all of the parts 
because the sum is greater than the the you know the sum is greater than the total of its parts. There we go. Um, you know, and I don't think that we've really leveraged that yet. Um, so I think that's what I'm excited about and about bringing, um, because if we can, if we can build the story of where our product is, because you know, there's nowhere else in the UK that you can invest in you know, amazing startups. We currently have Planet Organic on the platform. We have, you know, various other fabulous companies raising with us, but also invest in VC funds. You know, previously we've worked with Eileen Burbage and Passion Capital, and then also have a secondary market where you can sell your privately held shares. So you don't have to wait until an exit event. And that's just in the UK. So we've got to take all of that. We've got to then tell the story of how that fits within the global uh, you know, within the global and figure out what that customer experience looks like. But as we build these bridges and pull these things together, you know, it's it's opening up. It's opening up finance in a way that has been gatekept for so long. Uh, and I'm always excited about brands that are that their success is aligned with their customer success, you know, and and that's very much the case. Our success is aligned with our entrepreneurs who are fundraising on our platform and with our investors who are finding investment opportunities they wouldn't have anywhere else. And, and that means that we can focus. If we focus on what's best for them, it's going to be what's best for us. And that, I think, is the, the best possible place to be. So you mentioned your experience at Away. And I want to come back to what you said about kind of capturing lightning in a bottle in a moment. But first, you were there during COVID. So being at a travel company during COVID, I'm just curious, you know, I think there's an interesting story and I'm sure learnings there for anybody, even if COVID is hopefully never replicated, but just marketing through a downturn. How do you adapt to that? I'd just be curious to let you talk about your experience during that time for a couple of minutes. Not, not just a downturn, a black swan event. So I, I joined away on March 9th, 2020. Uh, I, I flew to New York. I was supposed to be in New York for three weeks. There's all these rumblings going on. I had an N95 mask with me in case I needed it. I supposed to be there three weeks. I was there for four and a half days, you know, and that's how quickly things turned. And in a week, uh, a ways revenue dropped 90%. You know, and, and and it was because the world ground to a halt. And now you are travel, you are retail, you are a startup in this in this event. And you know, I was brought in to help them figure out how to grow exponentially, and it very quickly became existential. You know how how do you survive? Because even a very well capitalized company like Away, you you have not built your runway based on losing 90% of your revenue in seven days. Nobody does. Um, and so, you know, it then went into you triage. What do we need to do to get through the next 30 days? What do we need to do to get through the next 90 days? Um, you know, and so I got, I had to jump in very quickly with my finance director and go, okay, let's talk about every cost we have. You know, we have a store in central London. We had... You know, uh, we have an office, we have products stored in two different fulfillment centers. You know, we have a staff, we have marketing costs, we have all of these things and going, okay, what can we do and how quickly can we do it? So how do we, you know, how do we 
make the European region as lean as possible, as quickly as possible, so that we have the time to then actually figure out what's going on, to watch what's happening, et cetera. And so, um, you know, we we furloughed most of the employees under the, the COVID furlough scheme. Um, uh, and then, you know, and and got rid of our office space, you know, kind of took a bunch of very quick steps so that we could kind of do that. And then that combined with everything that the, the business was doing globally kind of gave us that, that ability to wait and see. Uh, but then it was about, well, what can we do? How can we continue to talk to our customers at a time where maybe they're not buying, but hey, we can still continue the conversation with them. And so then it was about how do we be a little bit creative. So anytime, because, you know, the store would open, the store would close as we were going through these things. So it was about creating, um, you know, being scrappy. We would always put things up in the window uh, when we weren't there so that we could use that as a way to talk to people who might be walking around and seeing things and driving them to the website, creating things like curbside drop-off uh, or, you know, curbside ordering so that if when we were open, you didn't want to go into the store, you weren't comfortable, uh, hey, we'll bring the bag out to you. you know, drive to the nearest space, we'll bring it to you. And and kind of looking at these ways that we could talk to people even when we couldn't, uh, even when they may not be in the right headspace, and then thinking about new and different ways for them to engage with us as they came back. Um, you know, I think uh, it's it's one of the things I'm most proud of because, you know, the, the business is in good shape now. Uh, the European business is in good shape. And I'm uh, excited to see where they take it now that they're to the to the other side of things. So in terms of lessons to pull out of that, what I what I get from that is um, there's kind of the triage at the beginning of moving quickly to be able to do what you need to do to, yes, of course, keep the lights on, but it sounds like how you made decisions there was around, you know, what what can we afford to not do right now? What gives us the best chance of actually being able to survive this? And whether it's existential black swan or just a tough time, I think that process is probably something for everybody to think about if they are faced with some type of downturn or headwind. And then there's the adaptation and innovation. Okay, this is the new normal. How can we actually innovate to take advantage of it, which I think is so key. And you talked before about how different the e-commerce landscape is now. And one of the things that I see a lot of is I think a lot of businesses, because it's not quite as like a black and white then now as COVID was, it's uh, well, it's changing, it's over time, there's iOS 14, there's GA4, there's all these changes that are kind of coming about. People aren't going through that process of, okay, triage, adaptation, and innovation. They're kind of like, well, can we find a way to kind of keep things the way they were? Can we get back to what it used to be? Yes. And you know, my perspective and our perspective is like, no, you can't. And actually, the opportunity is in figuring out how to make the most of where things are right now and where they're going, as opposed to trying to hope that they go back or try to hold on to what they were before. Oh, I completely agree. And it's hard because when, you know, when your business is entirely predicated on, you know, one platform, on one tool, on something, and that goes away or, or, or changes the way that, that, um, you know, uh, iOS 14 and things have changed things recently, it's natural to want to go back to what worked. You're like, but it was going so well. Um, but you have to adapt. Like you, you have to roll with it. 
and go, okay, well, what's next? You know, if we can't do, if we can't do this, you know, how do we look at the data differently? How do we, you know, how do we get back to where we need to be or how do we move ourselves forward? Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing that a bit within Cedars. We, uh, you know, social media is a part of our media mix. It's a part of the media mix of the entrepreneurs who are running campaigns on us. You know, up until recently, you could be highly targeted. You are, you know, uh, spoke. You, you are targeting men who are 25 to 40, who have an income that's above average, you know, that are interested in clothing, et cetera. You know, you used to be able to basically get down to Eric by name, just about, um, you know, and you can't do that anymore. But what you can then do is start to think about how these channels work more holistically. You know, rather than trying to get to that person, how do you start to to tell a broader story? And then how do you start to get comfortable? It's almost going back to the, it's it's going back to marketing when I started my career. Uh, and, and I think probably when you started yours, when, you know, you couldn't attribute everything. You had to do modeling. You had to look at uplifts. You had to do holdout regions. You had to, you know, you had to work through these things so that you could get confident in the impact of the activity that you're doing. You know, we're, we're just back to that, but with new channels. Um, and and it it there's a there is a freedom and a creativity in there if people are are willing to jump on it. Yeah, but I think that's just it. And one of the lines that always go through goes through my head is, in times of change, it's often survival of the fastest, not survival of the fittest. And so that speed in making decisions and adaptation and innovation and in uh, in rethinking about things from scratch, like that's uh, you know a red thread, of course, through this whole podcast, but also through this episode as well. So I think that's a good uh, jumping off point to come back to your term and mention of capturing lightning in a bottle. And what I really like is this idea of it's not the lightning, it's the bottle. So either you know building on what you were talking about with how away you know, was really at the right place, right time, but also at the right strategy and right execution to build a successful brand on Instagram at that time. But how do you think about either based on those learnings or, you know, just just uh, your perspective, how do you or how should people be thinking about capturing lightning in a bottle in these marketing and brand building moments? Ooh, we're getting to the tough questions, I see. Um, I, I think that the most important thing is the ability to move quickly and capitalize on moments. So I mentioned at the top and you asked who my favorite challenger brands are. I said there was a marketing example I wanted to give you. I'm going to give it to you now. Union Pub in Washington, D.C. Union Pub is uh, a few blocks from Capitol Hill. Uh, without going into politics, the U.S. is in a bit of a pickle at the moment. Uh, and Union Pub has launched a promotion, which is for $218, you can become the speaker of the pub. You get given a gavel, you get all of these different things, you know, you get certain drinks and food for your group and all of that. And that to me, I think just encapsulates, how do you think about the moment? How do you take advantage of it? And And so that lightning in the bottle can be you know, it can be a week in time when you can capture capture on something like this, or it can be a brand new channel or a brand new 
avenue that opens up that you may be able to capture for for weeks or months or years, you know, the way Away was able to leverage social media, particularly in the US. And so I think that the, the most important thing is to um, recognize the moment or recognize the potential of the moment and then not being afraid to to take a couple of risks uh, to to run with it and see what happens. Um, I think that you know taking principled risks is is critical because if you only do what you know works, you're never going to be the one who captures lightning in a bottle because by its nature, it's the first person, it's the first, you know, that it's that rarity. Do you think there is a difference in the mindset or model marketers need to take to capture lightning in a bottle? I was going to try to extend the metaphor of like just one bolt, like real time <laughs> marketing. You know, you think all the way back to like Oreo dunk in the dark and every marketer for like 10 years was trying to create their version of that. Uh, and the union pub, I think fits in there. Like there are still certainly opportunities to do it well. Two, I would argue the away example of them building on Instagram was smart strategy, strong execution over a period of time. And I, I guess what I'm saying is like, and I actually don't know how I would answer the question, like, are they the same thing? And it's actually, you recognize the opportunity, you take some risk, you do it well, contextually, whatever, and that's just more and longer or is there a different approach when it's something of like, hey, I think we can build our business on this over the next couple of years versus, hey, I think we can build a bit of buzz over the next couple of days or a couple of weeks? I think that they require similar instincts, but they're different outcomes, um, which is I think it requires that um, it requires the ability to recognize that there's there is something you can capitalize on that you couldn't before. You know, but inherently the difference between trying to build a little bit of buzz and being like, this is something that can fundamentally change the business will require a, a different level of thought, consideration, execution. So, I, but I think in both cases, the criticality is your ability to say, there's something here I can capitalize on before other people. Yep. And then moving quickly to take advantage of it. Yeah. And, and also maybe the one that I would add in, in there is trying to maximize the opportunity. Cause I actually think that, um, I think a lot of businesses that do it well, and I guess the inverse is true for those that don't is they, you know, quadruple down on what works. They might be doing a bunch of different stuff and I don't know, maybe at a way they tried something different and you know, it ended up being Instagram. But I think a lot of the success stories are ones where they're placing a good amount of bets but at the same time, as soon as they see something working, they figure out how to maximize the opportunity that it presents. And you have to place big enough bets. I think one of the one of the challenges for the modern marketer in in the world of test and learn, and I'm in that world as well, is you have to know how big the test has to be, and you have to be willing to take the risk. Um, and to give an example from when I was at Square. Uh, when I joined Square, Square had never done any sort of brand building. In the U.S., they were able, very similarly to Way, to build the brand almost entirely organically. They had a free product that they could give away. There was a virality to it. When it came to launching in Europe, it was a very different market. There were a lot of competitors here already. Um, you know, the product was not free. Free is great. When you don't have free, it's much harder. Um, and nobody had heard of us. And so... 
you know, ultimately after we did a lot of the normal Silicon Valley testing playbook, I went back to leadership in San Francisco and went, we got to build a brand. And I said, I'm going to take the marketing budget and I'm going to put us on TV and we're going to do a brand campaign, you know, and that, and, and I basically said, I'm going to take this risk. Like if it doesn't work, it's on me, but this is how much I have to spend to make it work. You know, if I can't spend this amount of money, then then it's not going to work and it's going to be a waste. But, you know, and and you have to be willing to take those risks and to and to to put your neck on the line, Um, because otherwise, if we kept trying to go with the playbook of just performance marketing, just efficient channels that were highly inefficient because we had no top of funnel. you know, we we never would have been able to get there. And then that ended up uh, acting as a case study for them to roll out similar strategies in the US and Australia and other regions, because we were able to prove out in a smaller market. So therefore, in a lower cost market compared to, say, the US, that actually what the impact of investing in brand, investing in these woolly things looks like. So that then, you know, could be applied. So I think look for being willing to take risks, being willing to put your neck on the line, but also kind of one of the beauties when you are the small challenger brand or region within a big company is you can you can often be the one who does that because if it works, that can be applied much more broadly and people get really excited. Um, you know, whereas testing brand marketing in the US is a much more difficult, expensive you know, challenge. So if you've never done it, you don't have confidence confidence in the impact it's going to have. It's much harder to kind of get that test across the line. I'm I'm reading um, one of the other Jim Collins books. There's Good to Great, Built to Last, but then I just discovered there's like two others that he put out. And to be honest, like they kind of talk about the same things that the first two do. But anyway, um, you know, one of the concepts from from his research and his books is fire bullets then cannonballs, which is the same 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 kind of mentality of like you need to be constantly testing and learning, but then one you don't place big bets on things that you don't aren't pretty confident are going to work, but two when you are confident then you actually need to roll out the cannonball you actually need to go after it. All right, well I'm very I'm very motivated to figure out what our lightning in the bottle moment is going to be for rival of 2023 after this conversation. But Kate, I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate the time. Love this conversation. Uh, before you duck out, last question for you. We've covered a lot of ground. If you had to pull out or tie together one thing, one theme for people to do differently after listening to this episode, what would it be? Take principled risks you know, back them up with data, but don't be afraid to, to sometimes jump, try something new, advocate for something new, uh, because you will learn a lot. The company will, will get a ton from it. And you might, you might get that lightning in the bottle that you're looking for. Love it. All right, Kate, thanks so much again. Hope to see you soon. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been great to be here. Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please 
please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.